Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where Adland Media Marketing and everything in between comes out to play. Today, we're going to look at our annual Power 100 list, WPP's Fine and run the rule over ads from B&Q, Lego and Visa. Later on in this episode, Simon Gwynn will be speaking to a panel of guests about the expansion of Saatchi Home, which is Saatchi and Saatchi's partnership with the Affordable Housing Association, LHA London, and how to solve the challenges of making the ad industry accessible to people from a wide range of backgrounds. I'm Arvid Hickman, Campaign's Media Editor, and I'm joined by Campaign's Deputy Editor, Gemma Charles. How are you going, Gemma? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Now, of course, last week we went to that um, publicist group get-together, didn't we? How did you find that? I mean, wasn't it just amazing to get together with people in the industry and, and our team for a social night out? It was so great. It was wonderful, wasn't it? So what was good was that not only was I seeing um, publicist guys for the first time for forever, but I was also meeting members of our team for the first time who we've employed remotely it was I mean I haven't seen you for ages have I and we waved waved at each other <laughs> <laughs> pretty much that, that's it right because um just to, to let our listeners know I used to work for the um, campaign sister title PR week and while I know Gemma and we've waved and probably had meaningless chats uh, in the tea room we haven't really gotten to know each other but there's quite a number of new journos um, who have joined recently so it was really nice to get everyone together and and just have a you know a bit of a laugh, let our hair loose, that sort of stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Well, Gemma, as you know, we have some breaking news. Now, we're recording this week's episode on Tuesday, and we've just found out that Sky Media's managing director, Tim Pearson, has left the role um, six months after he started. Now, a lot of people will recall that um, Tim was Manning Gottlieb, OMD's boss, and also Omnicom Media Group's boss in the UK. Uh, at this stage, uh, details about his departure are scarce, but we understand that he has chosen to resign from Sky. Uh, we'll provide more details, you know, as, as we know them, but do follow our website um, to keep up to date with that story and much, much more. Uh, Gemma, to begin with, I wanted to discuss the Power 100 that we've launched this week. It lists the outstanding marketers in this market, and it launched with some pretty cool 80s gaming graphics, I have to say. Now, you are leading this project from an editorial standpoint. Take us through some of the key themes and trends that are on the minds of marketers. As you say, it's the top 100 marketers operating in the UK and beyond as well. So chosen by campaign's editorial team. So it's kind of a mix of traditional and disruptive brands. Um, they're, they're basically across all consumer facing categories and they're all doing great work as well. And so, yeah, I've written about this a bit in my column. But one of the interesting trends um, was that they've come out the other side of the pandemic, kind of a bit more confident and a bit more gritty. So, you know, they had all of their kind of usual way of working sort of stripped away. They've had to move at pace. And you know what? They really actually liked it. So that's been they, they, they kind of came out feeling sort of liberated almost by the disruption to their working lives. And they, so they have this kind of new agility about them and they do not want to lose it. That's, we were told time and time again that that kind of attitude and way of working that was sort of forced upon them, they don't want to lose it. They want to carry on with that because it's, it's been freeing and it's, it's shown them that there can be a different way to the way that they were working before. And then they've also talked about how there's been empathy 
and sort of caring that's come through, as we all know, um, in, in the way of working and more co- collaboration has come through and they want to keep that as well. So they're also um, really, really interested and in doubling down on sustainability and purpose that's that's showing no signs of abating and i mean we we had um we had two unilever marketers actually um connie brahms and alini santos in the power 100 and one of their they've actually got a new marketing philosophy uh which is called get on the front line which is kind of driven by this renewed focus on purpose not to say that unilever didn't have one before but they really they really are doubling down on it and making it the center of everything they do um, in terms of the numbers, so um, of the 100, you've got about 20 new faces, so completely new people that have never been in it before, and you've got five returners. Any exciting new ones that we should know about? I mean, they're all exciting, but which, which ones would you pick? You're so right. They are all exciting, aren't they? But um, I guess I would, I'd point out um, Louise Morgast, who is the marketing director at uh, Coca-Cola. So she's had... Um, quite a sort of rapid rise because actually last year she was in our um, Faces to Watch, which is for the the marketers and uh, ad people who, you know, have only been in the industry for like eight to nine years. So she's sort of switched straight from Faces to Watch to the Power 100, which doesn't happen often. Oh, as, a, as an Aussie, you might like this marketer. This is uh, Benazir Bartlett Batada. So she's running the, she's at Mondelez and she's running the caramel campaign. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I'm sure you've seen it, but apparently all Aussies love caramel. So um, she's, apparently, yeah, apparently. Do you not agree? With- <laughs> <laughs> well, no, look, here's the thing, right? So I didn't know caramel was even an Aussie thing. So I've been over a few years now. Apparently it is. And, and I did actually like it before I knew that it was something that I should like. But there was this really interesting, actually, this is a bit of a, a we're going on a bit of a tangent here, but there's this really interesting new outdoor campaign that Mondelez is, is running where they've got massive billboards, they've got a seat, and they're asking Aussies to sit in that seat so that people who walk past can talk to them about caramel milk and get advice from them, which, I don't know, it just sounds like some form of torture. <laughs> so... I think some of their creative executions around are quite interesting. But to, yes, a long story short, I do like caramel, but not because I'm expected to like it. But anyway. <laughs> well, there you go. She's in our she's in our Power 100 and that, that's her big focus for the year. Um, then other interesting people, you could also, um, we've added in John Schoolcraft, who's the Oatly Global Chief Creative Officer. They've had a real standout kind of year uh, where they've been, you know, lauded by the likes of John Hegarty. And they had, um, you know, a crazy Super Bowl ad as well, which divided people, but certainly got attention. What about in terms of the composition, in terms of diversity? Are we seeing more of it? Are we seeing less of it? Can you sort of tease out any trends on that front? Yeah, I mean, we've all, we've always had not a bad split between men and women. Um, where there has always been what I would call a deficit is on kind of um, racial ethnicity diversity. And that's that's not a reflection of the campaign editorial team. It's a reflection of the shape of um, the sort of top uh, level of marketers. So it's good when we, when we can, we want this list to be as diverse as possible, but also um, it's, it's sort of focused on the top marketers. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a pattern that you see repeated across Adland where representation is, is not there yet. So anything we can do to help with that and to 
bring that to the fore as well and to actually campaign and say we need to be reaching out and getting more people of colour into marketing that you know that's something that we definitely want to support. Sure just just out of interest because it's obviously been an interesting time on the diversity front there's been a lot of soul searching across Adelan um, and, and, and major brands uh, you know especially in, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement um, gaining a lot of momentum was that really talked about much in the Power 100 was that on, on marketers radars at all? It's definitely on their radars. I guess it's more what it, I guess what you had was last year was kind of when they put some of these programs into place in reaction to um, obviously the awful events um, involving George Floyd. And so what you've had is a kind of year of putting things into place last year and then this year kind of trying to make sure that they're followed through and that um, things things are progressing but it's definitely there are some that are more active than others let's be honest but it's definitely something that has sort of now become part of what they're concerned about and what they're looking at for sure okay and just finally you mentioned a bit earlier that this was an opportunity for marketers to reset and and sort of change the way they work what, what does that look like in reality what are some of the things that that they were talking about that are going to be different from how they they were previously operating and and I guess how they were interacting with some of their agency partners yeah so I think well one of the things that happened is a lot of marketers did actually do more that like the top marketers did more kind of um well I say face to face obviously we're talking about zoom but they actually interacted more with their agency partners than they they usually would have done so there there was there was a sort of breaking down of barriers in um in that way which you know i think agencies and marketers found quite refreshing and also this idea of these kind of 18 month plans they have just been sort of freed off the shackles of sort of having to feeling that they have to stick to these long term plans they feel that they can be agile they can what I think one of them said something like, what I feel is that I can be, I can have a long-term strategy, but executionally, I feel that I'm able to change quickly now. Cool. Well, moving along from the Power 100 to the Powerful. Now, there was a really big story that broke this week um, involving WPP, the US Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the regulator for companies listed on US stock exchanges, has fined WPP $19 million over what it says are accounting irregularities and corruption. Now, to be clear, this applies to the actions of a small number of agencies in India, China, Brazil and Peru. It does not apply to any UK agencies or those in other markets as far as we can see. Some of the allegations, though, are quite serious. Uh, they include bribing government officials in India for advertising contracts and um, WPP's failure to sort of police this activity. And now, Gemma, it sounds incredibly dodgy, but it's important to note that this type of corruption in some countries it's not as uncommon as what our listeners might perceive. I just wanted to know whether you know what you think the fallout's going to be, and whether it will extend beyond these markets in questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So first, let's point out that um, WPP sort of declined to admit or deny the SEC's findings. But um, moving on from that, I'm not sure that there will be major ramifications for this market. Um, I say that because I think to a certain extent it feels quite, yes, WPP is a British company, 
but it feels quite far away. I mean, we are talking, I think the countries, um, it's China, Brazil, Peru, India. So it, it, so in terms of this market, it does feel like there's, there's some clear water between, between us and them. Obviously, it's not a good look for investors. Um, whether it will, would affect the sort of perception of some of the agency brands, whether you're talking about Grey or YNR. Um, or Ogilvy, I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure it would would sort of be able to sort of permeate that. Yeah. Um, so I guess it, as long as it sort of, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see if anything else comes out. But um, at the moment, it feels like it's a sort of financial pages story. Sure. And also another thing to note, I, I believe this happened a few years ago, didn't I? I don't think this is something that's happened very recently. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's true. It's certainly nothing to do with the current leadership. Right, let's move along to our ad reviews. Um, we're going to start off with B&Q. They, they did this spot, it was done by Uncommon, a new animated film where they had, um, I think it was, what, it was the father of a house, wasn't he? And he was collecting dust in an attic. Um, and then everything started coming crumbling down by him. And all of a sudden, he was then inspired to start doing some of the DIY projects that had been left behind. If this dust settles one more inch... It might weigh us down for good. Now pick up that brush. Swing that hammer. Fix what's broken. Now, I just wanted to ask you, Gemma, what were your views on this one? Yeah, I thought it was cute animation. And obviously it taps into that insight (laughs) that you never quite get around to uh doing the DIY you sort of uh, leave it till later yeah I mean I like it I mean Uncommon have sort of really humanized the brand since they picked up the account a few years ago and you know this is another great example of that and um and also I should we should say though well done to the marketers as well because they're sort of you know assuming the usual sort of category norms here yeah I think that's a bit I got from it as well uh, what I really liked apart from the fact that it was visually appealing it was quite cute what it was just such a different take on, on that stereotypical home DIY type ad format isn't it and another thing I guess which could be an added bonus you know maybe kids will enjoy it and start pestering their parents to pick up that hammer <laughs> or, or the screwdriver and get things done indeed I, w- I wonder though could they have used could they have had a mum instead of a dad they could have absolutely maybe that maybe they do have one coming up and we just don't know about it perhaps perhaps right let's move on to our next one and that was a lego ad that was done in-house um now the film is about a knight who tries to cross a river and is apparently aided by children with lego it's another animation, visually appealing, um, very interesting. I have to be honest with you, Gemma, for most of this ad, when I was watching it, I actually had no idea what was going on until the very end. What, what were your views on it? Yeah, I had a similar thing going on. So, yeah, it was intriguing. I do wonder if I'd been sort of watching it in the real world as opposed to, you know, watching it to the first time seeing it um, through my work. I wonder if... I might have switched off a bit if I was watching it in the real world, whether I would have had the patience to sit there and, you know, watch it to the end to, to find out. But, you know, it is a nice twist. Again, it's cute, but um, perhaps I, wa- I just wonder if it asks a bit too much of the viewer. Maybe, maybe. But then again, maybe we're just um, 
critically overanalyzing it. Maybe if you were a bit more switched off, it would actually be a bit more fun in the background and, and you would see the, um, you know, you'd see the punchline at the end and, and say, hey, that was pretty cool. I don't know. One thing I do like about it though, and I think it's a direction Lego has been going in for a little while, is that you've got a bunch of kids who are basically using their imagination to make things out of random bricks. Now, I have to tell you know that when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, me and my brothers had an ice cream container full of random Lego pieces. None of it's Lego Star Wars or other box set stuff. And to make things, you had to, you know, it was all about your imagination. So I kind of like the way that Lego Sun have gone back there. And, and it's sort of encouraging children to be a lot more creative, you know, without instruction. Um, I, I think it's in, in that way, I kind of, I quite liked it a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're right, actually. And I um, I was playing with some other building blocks, not Lego, yesterday. So apologies to Lego <laughs> with, with my three-year-old. And um, it was surprising the amount of stuff that she made and imagined with just some simple simple circles and simple squares. So, um, yeah, the, that, that kind of... Um, the lovely side of imagination is a good thing to tap into, I reckon. What, what did your three-year-old um, end up building, if you don't mind asking? Uh, she built a car and a boat and a tower. And uh, okay. none of them looked like... Well, I suppose the tower looked like a tower, but the other stuff didn't look like any of those, any of those things. But that's the beauty of it, isn't it? <laughs> Sounds a bit like a Visa outdoor ad that we might be discussing very soon. <laughs> Do you want to take us through this one, Gemma? Yeah, so... Um, this isn't, you won't actually find this on the campaign website. So this is something that's blown up in social media. And um, it's, so it's a Visa outdoor campaign. As far as I can see, it's it's only outdoor. If anybody knows of it running in every, any other media, do get in contact. But essentially what it seems to be is uh, just a poster with um, the words Meet Visa and Network Working for Everyone, and then some kind of random pictures of people. Some some are smiling, some are frowning. Um, One of them looks like Mike Pence, but I don't think that's uh, deliberate. (laughs) And, yeah, so it's a bit confusing. And um, Jan Goodin, the ex-Aviva marketer, um, took to Twitter and wasn't very impressed. She said, brand owners often forget that the pleasure they receive from seeing their large logo does nothing for the rest of us. What is the message? Shouting your name alone is meaningless. So she she's obviously not impressed. And a few other people weighed in um, with sort of similar views, um, saying it's not very good. But Arvind, what did you think of it? Yeah, well, the, the version of this um, ad that I saw that I think Jan was initially talking about on Twitter didn't have anything but the Visa logo and three different images. I think one was a dog and there was a couple of people. I have to be honest with you, I had no idea what this ad was about or what it was trying to achieve. Um, I was, you know, if, if I was waiting for the tube and I saw this in the background, my mind would very quickly drift somewhere else. It's not memorable at all. Um, so I kind of, I kind of agree with Jan on this one. It's pretty forgettable, isn't it? Yeah. And then when you start to, again, if you start to analyse it, it's kind of confusing I wasn't clear what the point was and actually I mean (laughs) we had a rather um, a few of us had a rather interesting chat about this and kind of thought to ourselves when do you actually choose between Visa or MasterCard anyway and how much of a how how much of a choice is that how much does that dictate um, the accounts or the credit cards that um, you choose and 
we I think we arrived at the conclusion that certainly for it's it's not it's certainly not um it's not nudging you in any direction is it really no no it's not it's not <laughs> with that whole visa versus mastercard thing from my personal experiences in the past where one has pushed me towards you know getting getting their cards um versus the other has been with the value that you might get out of it. So, for example, um, I can't remember if it was Visa or MasterCard, but one of them um, was the official partner of the World Cup. And for me to get tickets to the World Cup, I had to have one of their cards. Now, that was a pretty compelling reason for me to get one of their cards. But in terms of advertising, I can't think of any ads that Visa or MasterCard have done that have really pulled me in any direction. So, yeah, I I kind of get it. It must be a really difficult thing to market um, in that respect. But I think, actually, there's a really interesting discussion, which is one of the points that Jan made about how brand owners are sometimes much more obsessed about their logos and their brands than the audiences that they target. I mean, that sounds like a a fascinating podcast for the future. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because if you... If you're passionate about, if you're working at a brand and you're passionate about something, of course you'll get obsessed with it. But you have to remember that the consumer, 99 times out of 100, won't be. So, exactly. you know, you've always got to be, you've always got to be aware of that. Absolutely. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for for this segment. But thanks for joining us, Gemma. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. So we will now hear from our technology and gaming editor, Simon Gwynn, who is talking to guests from Saatchi and Saatchi, Wavemaker and the LHA London. Well, um, I'm really delighted to be joined now by uh, four fantastic guests. Uh, we've got three brilliant women from the advertising industry. Uh, Sarah Jenkins, or SJ as she's known, is Managing Director of Saatchi & Saatchi. Hemi Patel is a creative at the same agency. Uh, Lisa Thompson is Business Director at Wavemaker in Manchester. And Tony Perkins is the CEO of LHA London, which has been partnering Saatchi & Saatchi on their scheme Saatchi Home to create affordable housing options for people um, who may otherwise find it a challenge to get started in the industry. Uh, the reason we're having this discussion is because that scheme is now being rolled out more broadly. Uh, and so we're here to talk about how that can help to uh, bring more social diversity to the industry. So um, uh, before we uh, get on to uh, talking about everyone's experiences in this area, Tony, I'd just like to uh, to come to you and um, uh, ask you to tell me uh, a bit about what LHA London does and how you got involved with uh, Saatchi and Saatchi. Sure. Hi. LHA London have been providing accommodation for uh, just over 80 years now, providing shared accommodation, single accommodation, single on suites and studios. And I think our path crossed when we looked hard at UK accessibility into London and looked at those profiles of residents that we had that were really finding it extremely difficult if they were living at home, perhaps in the north of the country or other parts of the country, to get into the industries that they wanted to, be they creative uh, and other industries. It was exceptionally, exceptionally difficult. So LHA have, over the past 10 years, looked at a new style of accommodation, purpose-built, which was single en suites. And we also realized that we needed to uh, really to foster a community within LHA. And this was extremely important for, again, young people coming for their first foothold in uh, in London. So I think it was a, 
our paths crossing. We're working with other sectors uh, where there's a strong international flavour in London. It's a great cosmopolitan place. But at the end of the day, London housing costs should not be a barrier to young people coming into Saatchi and alike. Perhaps we should also add that young people don't understand London. It's a huge city. And you may be offered a job in Chancery Lane. You may then look for accommodation in Croydon. You don't understand the geography of London and how difficult it is to get to London. So LHA has specialised in providing the accommodation in Zone 1 and Zone 2, where, again, I think it's important for young people to be able to cycle to work, to be able to walk to work, rather than having another huge cost for commuting in from perhaps the Zone 6 and Zone 7 travels in London, which can, can be expensive. It's not just about actually making the, the housing available, but it's uh, it's about where it is and, and how it works. Um, SJ, let me come to you. So you, you launched Saatchi Home uh, a year ago alongside two other um, projects, uh, Saatchi Open and Saatchi Ignite. Um, and you and your, your colleagues in the, um, the Saatchi's leadership team uh, spoke to Campaign when, when they launched uh, about what those were. So for anyone who, who missed that piece or who's uh, maybe uh, forgotten, can you just tell us what the thinking was behind those schemes? Yeah, for sure. So Saatchi and Saatchi turned 50 last year. So um, we wanted to make sure we marked our 50th year by facing forwards, what was going to make us Brilliant in 50 years time and then you very quickly get to talent. And once you get to talent, you've got to very quickly understand the challenges and the opportunities around getting a diversity imperative right. And then we wanted to look at what are the specific barriers were that we were going to break down as, as our legacy actions from our 50th year. So Saatchi um, Ignite, as we recognise we need to go as early in the early in the edu- education system as possible to get kids excited about creativity and the jobs, specific jobs that there are. And our industry. So Saatchi Ignite is a seven year partnership with any school that we um, partner with year seven through to years 13. We do curriculum based learning, which is amazing, using really cool stuff to teach maths or really brilliant stuff to teach business studies, whatever, whatever the subject is, we can find a way of t- using creativity to teach it. So it's curriculum based learning. We do career counselling and mentoring. And the third C is community. We take our creativity and we do community projects so we can show how creativity works in the real world. So that's Saatchi Ignite, which is amazing for the schools that we partner with but is insane for the people within our agency who get to be working with those schools and those students because they are so talented then we've got Saatchi Open which is re-engineering our approach to entry level to make sure we were genuinely opening our doors to everyone so a much more uh nurturing approach a much uh, we're going to different different sources to find our talent so Saatchi Open launched uh last spring and then Saatchi Home recognizing we can do all this work unless to Tony's point we find a way of breaking down the very real physical barrier of living in a city as expensive as London. So Saatchi Home is our offer for free or subsidised accommodation for all uh, interns and entry-level talent. What's your experience of uh, the rest of the ad industry at the moment? Do you think people are on board with the, the, need, the need for this yet? Or is there still a bit of a job to do there? We need more contacts. We need perhaps uh, more support from you within within your industry to, to, to widen the net. The number of opportunities in in the very centre of London for uh, for economical accommodation is 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 low, and therefore it will be there will there will come a time I think when we will very quickly fill our beds and we will need to expand and we will need to support that. I think it'll be it'll be a slow start unless 
other employers are going to come on board. And we're happy to take those inquiries and, and work with them. I just wanted to add to it, Tony, and, and we should definitely just talk about what a brilliant proposition um, LHA are, are providing any industry and any agencies listening or, or any marketeers, because we obviously, all of us as leaders want to find a way of doing the right thing, but it's it's hard what you do, buy a house, and then it's such a scalable opportunity with somebody like LHA, and the fact that there is the 24-hour security or sense of home and sense of belonging that they that they conjure up, the fact you haven't got to arrive in London with an £800 deposit. All these things just add up to a brilliant, brilliant proposition. And it's so workable. If you're a tiny agency, you could just still make use of what LHA have got to offer. Um, I'm going to come to Hemi now. Um, Hemi, you joined Saatchi and Saatchi earlier this year, in fact. You're one of the first beneficiaries of Saatchi Home and Saatchi Open, I believe. Can you tell us a bit about your experience deciding to uh, to pursue a career in advertising and um, how you ended up at Saatchi's? Yeah, so when I was in school, I loved both art and graphic design. And during my A-levels, I was kind of like, you're kind of closed off with the amount of choices within pursuing a creative kind of career. So I picked graphic design and I really enjoyed it. And then when I got into my second year of university, my lecturer, who had previously worked within creative advertising, kind of said to me, yeah, you're really good at design, but you know, you're quite a conceptual thinker have you thought about advertising and I had no clue whatsoever it was even an industry it even existed I was like going on the internet searching up loads of different things looking at websites like campaign or Adweek. I followed all ad agencies I could think of and I was like my eyes kind of opened and I was like wow this is incredible but then I kind of stumbled when I finished university earlier this year and I was like, okay, I've got this industry I really want to get into, but I feel like such an outsider right now. It almost felt like this is never going to happen. And for me, I was getting a lot more design internships and that was very accessible than advertising internships. It was very hard to get in to the advertising industry. I felt if you didn't have like connections or you know, you weren't really, you didn't have like a portfolio book, which I didn't at the time. And then through LinkedIn made some really nice connections and an amazing creative director called Will at an agency called 20-something kind of gave me an opportunity to be an art director intern. And during that time, my lecturer told me about Brixton Finishing School, which was incredible. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I got onto Brixton Finishing School and joined their ad academy and through the ad academy, um, the job came in for Saatchi Open. And I think I listened to that talk and I was like, oh my God, accommodation as well. Like everything was like tick, tick, tick. And yeah, through that, I just applied and I started beginning of August, two months nearly in. And yeah. Great. Oh, so it's actually a, a, a fair bit more more recent than I'd uh, I'd thought. But we'll, yeah. we'll come on, come back and hear hear some more uh, about your um, your ideas about um, what else uh, the industry should be, should be doing in a bit. But I'm going to come over to uh, Lisa now. So Lisa, last year you wrote a, a brilliant essay which um, won an IPA award called "Killing the Elephant in the Diversity Room: Social Class." And um, you um, you studied in Manchester and then you've spent your, your whole career so far uh, working there. So what I'd like to hear from you is what, what's your perception of London as someone who, who doesn't live or work there? I was thinking about this question last night in relation to my own career and I had 
a very real consideration of London when I first started, but I knew I wouldn't be able to afford to live in London at a kind of quality of life that I wanted to. So I think these schemes where accommodation is um, included and sorted is brilliant. I love coming to London for a few days, but I'm definitely a northerner. I like being up north. I um, I like the fact that I'm in a position where I can think about buying a house. And I think there's some really brilliant creative talent up north and some really brilliant agencies that get forgotten about. Um, and actually, if you're like me and you don't want to move to London, there's definitely a place for you in that. Tony, to your point, I'd love to see there being creative hubs in different parts of the UK where talent who are amazing and love advertising, but just actually don't want to move to London can can operate and and get a great job at the same time. So, um, Lisa, if if um, if you'd found London a bit more affordable and accessible when you were starting out, would you have been keener then on uh, starting uh, looking for your first job there? I think I would. Yeah, I think you were always very aware, like let's be honest, when you start in advertising, the salary isn't isn't huge and you want to be able to live somewhere. But also if you're moving to a new city, it's really important that you can socialize and make new friends and feel like you're kind of progressing in your life. And I actually think I would have considered it. I think particularly if there was an element where there's people living that you can make pals with and socialize with, I think London can probably feel quite lonely if you don't have that. And I also think that a really good point that you made, Tony, is actually people, when you move to London, you've got to grasp a whole new city. Actually, if there's places that can help you grasp a really big city that's really busy and expensive with lots of different elements I think it'd really help and I think there'd be a lot of people who knowing that they can get accessible housing would definitely take the plunge. Uh, SJ looking back at kind of the start of your career uh, did did you find it difficult getting yourself established? Terrifying how long ago it was, but let's let's go let's go down that dark that 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 dark, dark tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we don't, we don't need to say. Right, I'm gonna gi- I'm gonna give it away a little bit because I got my break. I always wanted. I loved advertising. You know, it was the best bit of the TV. The ads were as good as the TV at the time, uh, as the actual programs themselves. And I always wanted to do advertising. Wanted to live in London, so I just bit the bullet and uh, I came to London without a job, so straight into even more debt. And I wrote uh, 100 letters. I found 100 email addresses. I mean, I, I'm so old. It was like the internet was still a little bit embryonic. Somehow I managed to track down 100 addresses, wrote to 100 agencies uh, and just wrote a letter about why I wanted to work in a creative environment and why I was so excited about them and and their work. And I, and I, I got my breakthrough through a, a lot of, uh, I guess, hard work and a little bit of gumption and a lot of luck. That was my first break. In terms of my journey and my progression, I definitely was crazy lucky getting that break from writing letters and within a couple of weeks getting a job. And I think um, I was probably crazily naive about how much prejudice and bad muscle memory the industry had, because with hindsight, some of the conversations I had, some of the jobs I didn't get or some of the promotions that didn't happen along the way probably was because I was a woman, almost certainly because um, I was a different colour or, or looked different. So there were definitely things that stopped along, stopped me along the way. But I've also been surrounded by far more amazing managers, amazing humans that have powered me up and given me confidence uh, and refused to let me have demons. So our industry, I think, has always had a an amazing heart. But I think the transformation in the last 20 years, we've got to applaud ourselves for the fact that we've got our heads in the game on this. We now just make, need to make our intent into actions, I think. Yeah, so do you, do you think um, that... The attitude challenge has kind of been solved to some extent and it's just about 
the follow through now? I mean, we've definitely still probably got some uh, some less progressive. But yeah, we've definitely not not all our leaders are enlightened and brilliant, and not all agencies are are, are good and great. But I think we've definitely reached a tipping point where there is much more sort of good and commitment coming through than we'd even seen three or four years ago. As an industry, though, we've got to turn that intent into 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 shifts and to changes, and we need to see all departments having great diversity, all levels having great diversity. The work that we're producing needs to have more diversity. So well done this industry, but yeah, definitely a lot more a lot more has to be done. Hemi, um, do, do you mind if I ask, uh, have you felt since you've kind of been starting your career, have you felt ever felt that you've been judged or perceived based on your, your gender or ethnicity? Well, a few, well, when I was going through my final year, I actually got a message on, on Instagram and it was like, oh, you know, I really like your work. My friend's looking to hire someone and they're going to email you. And it was a London-based agency. And on my design account on Instagram, I have no photos of myself. It's just my work. And then the guy a week later emailed me and was like, hey, and addressing me as a man, just assumed that I was a male and I could design the way I did. And then, yeah, I just kind of had to say like, oh yeah, sorry, I'm actually a female and I do design and stuff like that. So I think sometimes it does happen. And I think for me, it's just like, yeah, it's people's kind of biased opinion and you just have to correct them and get on with it. But I think this industry as a whole is very accepting and I I feel it, you know, I feel like we allow people to come as they are, we allow people to dress as they want, um, to be who they want, to express themselves as they want to, which is really nice and which doesn't happen in a lot of other kind of industries. But yeah, I think there is still improvements that could be made. I, just to pick up on that, Hemi, I think it's a really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting story in that someone assumed that you were a man. And, oh no, no, you're a woman. But uh, there's, it's such a confidence game. Our industry, so much of it is built on your ability to sort of back yourself. Just something like that is enough to then knock your confidence, knock you back ten percent, and it's a difference between you being great or good in the interview, etc. So, I think uh, again, in terms of the things that we need to be leaning into as an industry, it's understanding those microaggressions and assumptions and what it does, however it manifests itself to the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant talent that we've got to be nurturing and creating a sense of belonging for, not setting them setting them up to have their confidence eroded. We've got to be doing more to to, to boost, which I think I hope one of the things that we learn in Saatchi Open is no longer that boot camp approach to entry level survival of the fittest. It was like, what are we going to do to create the conditions for the talented crew to be their most talented and talent will out? It's not about sifting through and, and making it as hard and as tricky and as difficult as possible. And hopefully, Hemi, that's what got reflected in your experience of going both Brixton Finishing School and Saatchi Open. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's something I always tell people when they ask me like, oh, yeah, how how was your like first couple of weeks? Everything was considered and detailed from like even the kind of application process of giving us a brief that like they didn't want to see well Saatchi didn't want to see any like previous portfolios any work it was like just answer these three questions all of us kind of like on the same level at the same start you know there was no kind of like oh yeah I went to this portfolio school none of that um to then being able to come into the office work as a group like work on a brief together present to like loads of the Saatchi kind of team then get given lunch which is really nice and then 
at the end of the kind of process and be interviewed by SJ and Richard, like the senior leadership team. And yeah, our first week was a three-day week, which I think is really important. I think people forget that when you've come straight from, say, uni or you've come from, like, not doing full-time work for so long and you're just starting out, it's like that first week can be so draining and so hard, especially when you've moved out or you're in London. It's like it just hits you. Um, so having that three-day week, I was able to, like, walk around London, kind of explore around the building I was living at in LHA. And it was just nice, you know, I got to take it all in and moving out from home, people don't really say it in the beginning, but it's tough. Like you just feel a bit overwhelmed and you just need the extra days just to relax a little bit. And yeah, we had like loads of inductions during our first three weeks. So um, kind of inductions from each kind of sector. So account management and strategy and creative. And so I kind of understood what everyone did And then even things like a jargon masterclass. So Lisa, to your point of like being able to kind of take every single word that we didn't know at all and like listing them all out, making sure and just keep adding it on. Like now I just have this huge list that I keep adding on to and I'm like, okay, so when the next cohort come for Saatchi Open, I'll send it to them and they can carry on adding to it. Um, But yeah, no, I think... It's just incredible because I just feel like I've never done an internship or like a placement or had a job where I felt like, you know, I'm just constantly learning and growing every day. And I always feel comfortable asking questions and, you know, putting my hand up and being like, I don't get this. Like, can I do it again? And in other places that I've been at, it almost feels like I'm scared to do that. Because it's kind of hard when you're starting out. You don't want to do the wrong thing. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to ask questions. But yeah, no, I think this program for sure has just like made me feel comforted and made me feel like every wrong can be made into a right. And it's all about growth, which is really cool. I think on the making our industry accessible, I think that we also have to kind of take a look at ourselves and think about how much jargon and how much stuff we assume people will know. So um, I've had an apprentice starting our team this uh, week and we went for lunch yesterday and um, it was asking me loads of questions and he just went to me, went, Lisa, what is a pitch? And I laughed because I realized that we just presumed that everyone would know what a pitch is and that what the process is and how it works. And I think that actually we need to think about when we're bringing people into the industry that we we kind of appreciate the things that we do that they might not be aware of. Sarah, can I ask, it's quite interesting because I guess if we're talking work-life balance, uh, you're the worker, we're part of the life uh, and supporting supporting your young people. Has post-pandemic in the industry changed then in the way that, was it very much five, six days a week? Was it long hours, but very office-based? And has has that industry become uh, aware of uh, more agile hybrid working or has that always been the case and I say that from from an LHA point of view as a, a way that we can support that by looking at the way we design our social space whether we have more flexible space where you people want to have uh, perhaps get together to do small projects in in the evening and want a smaller space that we can open up to larger space it's quite interesting to us. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in, in truth, the industry is working harder than ever. So the intensity hasn't gone away or the or the need to put to put in 
put put in the hours. But I think what what there is is a huge amount of trust now between employer and employee. To yeah, you know what? If you like, will Emmy and I were laughing before and I haven't seen her this week, but I know she's been working. Whereas before we'd have been like, come on, haven't seen you presenteers and all that crazy stuff that as an industry we were were sort of actually encouraging now I think we recognize that some people are actually going to be better when they're not in the agency not in the office coming in and out or coming in just to be social and to get the energy so um, I think a a massive plus is is the trust A, a massive plus is that we um we can be more agile and to your specific question Tony I think Anything that LHA can do to allow that blend of work life to work. So even just making sure that there's a backdrop for people's Zoom calls so that they feel super comfortable. Um, and yes, to your, to your point, having the space to possibly um, work within or more like a, a WeWork space within LHA so that people can uh, double screen or have the charger sockets, whatever it is they need to to get on with their uh, their working day. SJ, um, what would you see as uh, success? What would that look like from uh, these projects? For me, success is like, I guess it, there are, there's phase into it. For me, for phase one, 100% for people to steal, hack, borrow, adopt anything we're doing within Saatchi at the moment, um, in turn for me to steal from anyone else, because change will only come at scale. So we all need to be borrowing from each other the best ideas and uh, and approaches. So uh, yeah, for, for Horizon 1, definitely just stealing from each other and improving alongside each other. Stage two would be the work is monstrably better proving that diversity is the best thing you can do for your business um and that's both behind and in front of the camera if we want to be transformative for modern britain as it reaches a, it, its next chapter i think creativity advertising needs to find its next level and then finally big success proper success we don't have to have these podcasts talking about diversity in five ten years time because we're just on it and it just happens we don't talk about women at entry level anymore because in the last 30 years we've got our act together so hopefully we don't have to talk diversity in a few years time either in total i also think it'd be brilliant we all saw the advertising association all in census results and there's some real challenges with some of that data it would be amazing if our data just shows we're in line with the population because actually you know what we need to communicate with the whole population. So if we get those different different voices in, we might we definitely will create better work. And also it'd be good if our we're not looking at it and being like, oh God, we're really bad. Like it's quite scary when you see those numbers. Like we need to fix them. Well, I just like to say I hope that we can be your housing platform for this talent, for this diverse talent. But uh, you know, I, it will be employers that will need to pull some of these levers, really, to make this happen. I think for success for me, I mean, I feel pretty successful right now in terms of getting my foot in the door and um, being an advertising agency, like one of the best ones. I think for the future, yeah, it's the same. I'd love to be able to kind of like share this advice and give advice to people who've been in a similar position to me. I don't think it's the easiest when you're like, an outsider and you're trying to break in also like just sharing and spreading the word and I think for me it's like being able to tell like family members like younger cousins like you know this industry exists and the creative industry is out there like just go for it if you have a passion for it pursue it and yeah just seeing where this job takes me I think I'm excited to be pretty open and um, explore everything I've been able to kind of do every sector within this uh, role that I've been given. So after 12 months, uh, yeah, it'd be great to see where I end up. 
That's all we have time for today. Thanks very much to all of our guests, Simon, Sarah, Hemi, Lisa, Tony, and Gemma. And thank you for listening. Um, please make sure you catch up with all the latest news, analysis, and features on our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Also, make sure you subscribe to all of our different bulletins, which you can find on the website. Until next time, I'm Arvind Hickman. Goodbye. Goodbye.